Tonight, there are two big words in my scripture reading. Sometimes we don't know what these big words mean. We hear them all our lives, and we assume they must mean something good, but couldn't define them if we had to. <clears throat> One of them is found several times in 2 Corinthians 5, beginning with verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The other big word is in 1 John 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Reconciliation and propitiation. We've reached a sad time in this country. Everybody's mad at everybody, it looks like, calling each other names. Can't get along on anything. We've never had so many conferences and symposiums and committee meetings. If committee meetings would do it, it'd have been done a long time ago. You know a committee is a group of the unfit appointed by the unwilling to do the unnecessary. The more we get together, the more we come apart. Will Rogers said one sure way to prevent wars is to abolish peace conferences. A pretty good suggestion. Somehow the idea has gotten around that if we can talk things over enough, that'll settle all our problems. All we need is understanding. We've got to figure out everything. These new books on child training written by people who never had one uh, can explain all of Junior's escapades, you know, in psychological terms. Junior bit the meter man. Junior kicked the cook. Junior's antisocial now, according to the book. Junior smashed the clock and lamp. Junior hacked the tree. Destructive trends are treated in chapters two and three. Junior threw his milk at mom. Junior screamed for more. Notes on self-assertiveness are found in chapter 4. Junior tossed his shoes and socks out into the rain. Negation that, a normal disregard to stain. Junior got in Grandpop's room, tore up his fishing line. That's to gain attention, see page 89. But Grandpop seized the slipper and yanked Junior across his knee. For Grandpa hadn't read a book since 1893. 
Now, the title of that poem is On Being Behind with One's Reading. Maybe it'd be a good thing if we got behind with our reading today. Maybe it was a good thing Grandpa hadn't read all these books. I rather think so. But I get tired of all this uh, soft talk today. If a burglar breaks into your home, he doesn't mean any harm. He's just hungry for fellowship. <clears throat> the gangster will throw his gun away if you have a chat with him. Dialogue, that's the big word. You hear it every day. War can be prevented if we have enough summit conferences. As long as they're talking, they're not shooting. You've heard that. But if I remember correctly, the shooting started at Pearl Harbor while they were still talking in Washington. The big word today is uh, reconciliation uh, from the human angle. It's the unpardonable sin to disagree with anything or anybody. Everybody's supposed to smile a smile, and as you smile, another smiles, and soon there's miles and miles of smiles, and life's worthwhile if you but smile. Just keep grinning, that'll do it. And according to all this, Elijah should have had a panel discussion with the prophets of Baal. Our Lord should have worked out a program of peaceful coexistence with the Pharisees. And Luther should have had a summit conference with the Pope. That should have settled it. These apostles of reconciliation say that communism could be won over by negotiation. But communism is a moral cancer. You don't have peaceful coexistence with a cancer. You get it or it gets you. There are those who say we ought to forgive communism just as Jesus forgave the thief on the cross. Jesus forgave only one thief on the cross. Nothing said about him forgiving the other one. Jesus was and is the great reconciler, but before we consider what he came to reconcile, we better notice what he did not come to reconcile because some things are not negotiable. They're not settled by compromise. They cannot be arbitrated. They're absolutely irreconcilable. Righteousness and unrighteousness, for instance. What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? The only way that unrighteousness can ever have fellowship with righteousness is by becoming righteous through faith in Christ who becomes our righteousness imputed and imparted and implanted when we're born again. And then what communion hath light with darkness? People are trying to live in a twilight zone today. Black and white have been smudged into gray. But right still right and wrong still wrong. Truth and error cannot be reconciled. The same fountain cannot send forth both bitter water and sweet. Two cannot walk together except to be agreed. The New Testament takes a firm stand against false doctrine in language utterly foreign to the compromisers today. And then uh, the Bible tells us that you cannot reconcile the church and the world. We've been trying to do that here lately. What concord hath Christ with Belial? Concord is the Latinish form of the word in the original from which we get the musical term symphony. What symphony hath Christ with being? There is none. I've heard of the unfinished symphony. This is the impossible symphony. What part hath he that believeth with an infidel, the temple of God with idols, the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
Then uh, it seems to me that we ought to remember that Jesus said in Matthew 10:16, for instance, to his disciples, I send you forth as sheep, not white sheep among black sheep, but sheep among wolves. Now, there's a good deal of vivid imagery in the Bible, and many of the figures are from the animal world, the mule, the dog, the sow, the fox, the sheep, and the goats. Evil men are spoken of as wolves, and God's people as the sheep under the great shepherd. 23rd Psalm, John 10, sheep of his pasture. There aren't any other two animals on earth as unalike as wolves and sheep. The wolf is a symbol of all that's vicious and violent and rapacious and destructive. And the sheep's a figure of all that's gentle and innocent and uh, peaceful and benign. And there's no way on earth to get wolves and sheep together. They'll lie down together in the kingdom age, Isaiah 65, 25, but they're not going to do it now unless the sheep's on the inside of the wolf. There are those who try to establish connection, liaison, rapport, to use some of your newfangled words, between the world and the church. But there's only one race problem in this world. We've been talking about the race issue. God sees only one race issue, just two races, the once born and the twice born. Those are the only races God sees. That's all. You either belong to only one or to both. If you're a Christian, you, you belong to both. You've been once born and twice born, but the emphasis is on the twice born. Now, the wolves are out to destroy the sheep today. This idea that the world is kindly disposed toward the church is a lot of eyewash. The true shepherd does not invite the wolf into the fold to establish communication. He lays down his life for the sheep. It's about time we got wise to what we're up against in this world of darkness. The last half of that verse in Ephesians says we're up against the unseen power that controls this dark world and spiritual agents from the very headquarters of evil. <clears throat> we're living in a demonized world today. All these terrible things you read about now in the papers and see in the news. This is not meanness. We've always had meanness. This is demonism, double distilled, concentrated. Sometimes the wolves wear sheep's clothing, creep into pulpits, and would deceive the very elect. Satan does more harm as an angel of light than he ever did as a roaring lion. Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 29, 30, in verse 29, he said, wolves will enter into the church. From outside, he's talking about false teachers. In the 30th verse, he said, and of yourselves, uh, men will arise speaking perverse things evil. Trouble from the outside and trouble from the inside. The church suffers more from wolves from the outside and the inside today than roaring lions. Theodore Roosevelt said during the First World War, He's just about my favorite president. And I remember it. Teddy Roosevelt, when we had a lot of German-Americans over here, you couldn't tell who they were for, Germany or America. And old Teddy Roosevelt said, if you're an American and something else, you're not an American. 
room for only one flag over here. He said, America is not a polyglot boarding house. That's right. You either are or you aren't with regard to your relationship to Christ. You might as well try to describe a sunset to a blind man and play music to a deaf man. You might as well try to discuss nuclear physics with a wooden Indian in front of a cigar store. As to talk about the things of God, the man never has been born again. You're wasting your time. It's pearls before swine, Jesus said. I don't care how educated he is. His education does not enable him at all to perceive spiritual reality. It doesn't happen a bit. It'll help him after he gets saved. But he'll never lay a hold of it. He may be a Ph.D., but that only means phenomenal dud in his case. You can't educate your way into the kingdom of God. You get their heart first, not head first. The only thing I know of that's got its head and heart in the same place is cabbage, and you're no cabbage. You get into the kingdom of God heart first. A lot of our churches today are just rededicating all the time. I think Southern Baptists just about rededicated themselves to death. We've walked down more aisles and promised God more things and done less about it than any crowd I can think of. And it's old Adam nine times out of ten, and God wouldn't accept him if he rededicated himself a thousand times. You cannot serve God in that old nature that you were born with the first time in this world. You cannot. You may mean to. You may try to. You can't sing, teach a class, or do anything else to the glory of God in that old Adam. It takes the new man. And if you're what you've always been, you're not a Christian. You may be a religious uh, sinner and a church member sinner, but a Christian, something new. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Paul said, Not many wise, mighty, or noble have been called that no flesh should glory in his presence. And then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now there it is. You cannot please God in the flesh. The flesh means your own nature. It doesn't mean your body. You've got to have a body to run around in. But I'm talking about your flesh, the old nature you were born with. Can't please God with that. So we have sheep among wolves. Mr. Letourneau used to say that what bothered him was not the wolfishness of the wolves so much as the sheepishness of the sheep. That's what bothers me. So many of God's people are so sheepish. Uh, they're ashamed of the Lord. In John 17, I preached about it when I was here last year. Jesus said we've been saved out of the world. We're still in the world, but not of the world. But we've been saved out of the world to go right back into the world to win others out of the world, and that's the only business we've got in the world. Now, that's our situation. You cannot be popular with this world and be a Christian. Jesus said in John 15, verses 18 and 19, you ought to make a red ring around that. He said, the world hated me and it'll hate you. And then five times the word world is found in that next verse. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I've called you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now what are you going to do with that? There's no way you get around that that I can see. 
Well, if Jesus didn't come to get righteousness and unrighteousness and light and darkness and the church and the world together, what did he come to reconcile? You don't need to be afraid of that big word, reconciliation. I'm rather disturbed by the idea today that we have to take all these great truths of the old hymns and drag them in the dirt to make them acceptable to the young generation that young people can't understand old-fashioned terminology and the songs of Isaac Watts, his idiom, for instance. We need to get it in the language of the modern time. Well, the strange thing is these kids are studying Shakespeare in school, and that's still in the old idiom. They get it. Medical students are studying medical terminology. Law students are studying legal terminology, and they manage to get that. How come young people can't get the language of Scripture, especially since the Holy Spirit's there to guide them and will? And if they don't understand what reconciliation and propitiation means, the young people, it's up to us to show them <laughs> if we know, which disturbs me a great deal. Now, this big word reconciliation, it simply means that man is not right with God in his natural condition that he was born with. He's a stranger to God. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Now, how are you going to get a holy God and an unholy man together? We couldn't do it. But God sent his Son, who had no sin in him, but took all sin on him. And God's Son became our sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, that's what reconciliation is. That doesn't explain it all, because if you and I could understand it, there wouldn't be much to it. But that's the basis of it. God took it on himself through sending his son to take all sin upon him. And that way, a holy God and an unholy man could meet. Now, there has to be a moral basis for it. You say all you have to do is repent. No, it isn't. If a criminal commits a crime, it's not enough for him to say, I'm sorry. There's a penalty that has to be paid. Now, Jesus took the penalty of the broken law of God and met it on the cross. Therefore, God can be just on one side and justifier on the other, you see. And uh, God and man can meet. Now, propitiation simply means, refers to the mercy seat in the Old Testament, sprinkled with the blood of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And that lamb was offered, and the judgment seat became a mercy seat, not uh, to placate an angry God. Jesus didn't die to get God in good humor because he was mad at us. God himself was in Christ providing the sacrifice of his own son. And so we are reconciled. We're no longer estranged. The price has been paid. Jesus paid it all. And the ministry of reconciliation, and you're an ambassador for that ministry. You don't have to be a preacher is that we're telling people peace has already been made between God and man. We don't make it. It's been made. But until we accept it, it's still not ours. So you see, God is propitiated, and the sinner is reconciled. And that's the blessed meaning of it, and it all comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. Not just the cross, because uh, our Crossless Christ is as powerless as a Christless cross. And Christ without the cross is as powerless as a cross without Christ. 
When my Lord hung on the cross, they said, let him come down from the cross. We'll believe him. They're still saying that. This world will take Jesus today if you leave the cross out. They'll take him as a teacher. They'll take him as an example. Many of them brag on Jesus. Infidels say nice things about Jesus. Bob Ingersoll did. But they don't like that blood and they don't like the cross. You see the cross. I want you to fix your eyes on that cross back of me. It has a vertical span up and down. And it has a horizontal span. That vertical span speaks of my relationship to God. Jesus died to set everything straight this way. Between you and God. The horizontal span speaks of my relationship to other people. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these hang all the law and the prophet. And our relationship to God was established by the cross. And you come into a new relationship with people through the cross. Now I'm not a Catholic and I don't carry a crucifix. But I do find myself many times in my meditation. And I do an awful lot of walking and Meditate. I'm glad I'm over yonder where I am this week because I'm trying to work on a new book of daily devotions and I've got plenty of room to walk. And uh, I find myself in my meditation having a checkup every once in a while and it's against the background of the cross. I say, how am I in my relationship to God? Is there anything between me and God? Now I wish you'd ask yourself that tonight. Is there any point of rebellion in your heart against God? Now, nobody's perfect. I'm not talking about that. But is there any point in your life where you and God are having an argument? And you've never said yes. Now, sometimes a man goes through life and is a rebel at one point. I'm not talking about our mistakes and being overtaken by faults. We all do that. We need to take care of that too. But I'm talking about willful, habitual, deliberate rebellion against God. Now you face the cross and you have to do something about that. So I make the sign of the cross not as a Catholic. I make it all by myself to sort of visualize it. Be a good thing if you do that. Nothing between my soul and the Savior. What is your trouble? Is it a sin of omission? Something God wants me to do that I won't do? Is it a sin of commission? Something I'm doing I ought to quit? Is it a sin of disposition? How about your tongue and your temper? Is it a doubtful thing? Whatsoever is not a faith is sin. The good that I would I do not, that's omission. The evil that I would not that I do, that's commission. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, that's disposition. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. That's the doubtful thing, the thing that's got a question mark after it. If there's anything between you and God that's got a question mark after it, you're not sure about it, but you've argued for it till you've tried and you've sort of convinced yourself that it's all right. If you've got any doubt about it, give God the benefit of the doubt. Now think about that tonight. 
anything between you and the Lord. Jesus said to the church at Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira, I have something against you. I wonder what God has against us tonight. Jesus has something against churches sometimes. How is it with you? Now how about this span? How about you and other folks? I find myself asking that. I believe I can say tonight uh, that God knows there's much land that needs to be possessed and I'm conscious of many things that must be straightened out from day to day. But I don't believe that I, I am living at a, a point of willful, deliberate rebellion against God. And I don't know of anybody that I'm mad at or is mad at me or that that uh, we're at war in our minds and attitudes. Jesus said, if you bring your gift to the altar, you're enveloped to church, and remember that there's somebody that's at odds with you. Did you say now that it is uh, whose fault it was? Doesn't matter whose fault it is. That's got nothing to do with it. Don't make your offering till you get right with that person or try. That sure would ruin our church budget, wouldn't it? know where the money would come from over the country. Well, I'll tell you what would happen. If folks got right with God, you'd have more money than you ever had. That's what keeps churches from rolling along like they ought to. It's a shame and disgrace that in an hour like this tonight, when this world is on its last legs and so violently rotten from the top on down that there aren't any words to describe it. I've quit saying civilization's going to the dogs. I've got too much respect for dogs. I wouldn't want to say. Plenty of people are they doing things no dog could ever do. I heard of a hog that got hold of some liquor in the swill and got drunk and called the other hogs together and said, if you'll excuse me for acting like a man, I never will do it again. But, beloved, in a time like this, churches ought to set an example of how to get along. Homes ought to do it. You'd be surprised. I was with Jack Taylor just a couple of weeks ago in Bassett, Virginia, and Jack's going all over the country now preaching with power. And he preached four sermons to the home, one sermon to wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, and ex-husbands love your wives, and so on. I watched that crowd. I said, I wonder how these women are going to take that in this women's lib day. Oh, it would have given some women's lib poor soul uh, She'd have had apoplexy, I think, if she'd have sat in there and heard that preaching, because the Bible says, wife, submit yourselves to your husband. Don't look at me now like that. I didn't write it. And then he got around her husbands in the next sermon. They ought to love their wives as their own bodies. And the last night, I was outside waiting to be picked up and couldn't stay inside for the meeting, but I, he asked folks to get up and talk. How do you think? How do you feel about it? You're having trouble, and you should have been there to see husbands and wives all over that place get up under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and say, we needed this. It would have not been right. 
He told of his own problem with his own wife. He told me about it. He's got it in his book. She's a fine little lady, but they, they had real problems there for a while until they got around to the Bible and quit trying to have each run their own way and both decided to let God have his way. The Bible says, submit yourselves one to another and all these other things in the Lord. You can't do it. You got to do it by the Spirit of God. And our homes, our homes of church members today, and are in deplorable condition. And this country ought to be declared a disaster area as far as our homes are concerned. Any pastor will tell you that his biggest problems, home problems. Well, that's that's one of those things that needs to be faced up to. Confess before God. And if you're at odds with any church member, if you've got a wrong critical spirit, that ought to be dealt with. You need to straighten it out. How long has it ever been since you apologized to anybody? That takes more religion than sending a hundred dollars to Africa for a missionary. It takes a lot of grace. Just admit you're wrong. There are not only husbands and wives who need to confess their faults one to another, but young people to their parents. Teenagers need to say, Dad and Mom, I've not been acting like a Christian. And sometimes parents need to say that to their children. Works both ways. You're not going to have a revival so folks are willing to have the will of God in their hearts first and in their homes and then in the church. Not what they want, but what God wants. When you have that, something will happen. You can preach for six months and sing and do all the rest of it, but you don't have a revival by singing and preaching alone. You never have it for folks do what God says do. Finney the great revivalist said, a revival is a new beginning of obedience to God. Just that. Actually, not a lot of hooping and hollering in that, just obeying God. That's what it is. Just as practical as can be. An old Paul stood before Felix on trial. That little Jew with his bodily presence weak and his speech contemptible. The only stocks and bonds he ever had were stocks for his feet and bonds for his wrists. He stood there and said, as those old chains rattle, herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and man. There's your cross again. Paul said, I exercise myself. It takes a little exercise, you see. You have to get one foot in front of the other sometimes go to somebody's house. Tell them. You have to walk down the church and exercise a little bit to have always a conscience right with God and right with men. Now, if you can get church members to do that, you've got to revive I know that's not easy. It would be a lot easier to just say, well, I move we accept this as information and be dismissed, which is what most folks do at the end of a sermon. But this is the price that you have to pay. Whether you want to pay it or not, I don't know. Most people today are determined to have their own way instead of letting God. Nothing much happens many a case. But the minute you're willing to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, something will happen. Now let me ask you in closing. 
how are you fixed this way tonight between you and God? And how about you and people? Anybody. When you get that pill, that's revival. I don't know a thing in the world about who needs to do what in this church. I don't go around asking to tell me what's wrong or what's right here. I don't want to know. It's none of my business. And if I didn't know, it would color my preaching and slant my messages, and I don't want to know. But I can tell you one thing. When the Word of God is preached by the Holy Spirit, folks will think somebody has been telling the preacher. I was in Maryland one time where the preacher about the middle of the week said, Would you mind explaining to these folks that I've not been loading you down with a lot of information about the church members? He hadn't said a word. And I'm sure some of the folks thought that he'd been giving me a whole lot of information about what's wrong with sister so-and-so and brother so-and-so. He hadn't. But this old book will do it. Now I'd like to ask you folks, I haven't got any time to lose, you know, in this life of mine. Most of mine is back of me. And so far as this world, and most of it's ahead of me, so far as eternity is concerned. But I know one thing, it's no time to beat around the bush, and I'm not about to do it. And I told God that I'd tell it like it was, the devil tried to scare me out of that 60 years ago and I started. Said you wouldn't have anywhere to preach. I've got more preaching to do in my 70s than I ever had in the 60s or 50s or 40s or 30s or 20s. The devil told me I'd starve to death if I preached like this and from the way I look you might think the devil is right. <laughs> but uh, I'm doing all right. I haven't got any time to waste. I'm jealous. Paul said, I'm jealous for you church members. I'm, I'm just as jealous as I can be when I see the devil and the world and the flesh leading church members astray. Paul said he was. Every preacher ought to be jealous. If he's not jealous, that kind of, plenty of preachers jealous of each other. I'm not talking about that. We need more preachers that are jealous like Paul was jealous because God is jealous. You look up how many times the Bible calls God a jealous God. And I, I hate to see the church missing its great opportunity in this world today when everybody else is mad and there's not much love in the world and there's, there, uh, things are in such a condition that you, you've heard the reports by even the schools over this country that we don't get this vandalism stopped, they're going to tear all of them up and burn all of them down. We've got so much lawlessness. And it's because there's no discipline in the home, the children no longer re have any discipline, there isn't any in the church, there isn't any in the school, there isn't any in the government, there isn't any in the law. The law courts are so far behind now with all the crooks that they can't begin to catch up with all the arrests. And you bring a fellow in and he gets a little tap on the wrist and don't do it again, and he does, it's the first chance he gets, because there's no, absolutely no authority and no discipline. And no nation can last long like that. No church can. You don't have discipline. It ought to mean something to be a churchman. It ought to mean something. It always did in the sight of God. Anybody can join today. That's one trouble. Everybody's got in. And most of my crowd, they're all church members. They don't think I'm talking to them. It used to, it used to be people had too much respect for the church to join it till they got converted. 
Now today they join it, like they joined the Kiwanis and the Rotary Club and the Daughters of the American Revolution and everything else under the sun. Anybody can get in, nobody's ever put out, and look what we've got. We've got so many in our churches today that are living below God's standard, you'd have to backslide to be in fellowship. Now in a time like that, there's a price to pay. It takes a lot of grace to say, Brother Havner, I, by the Holy Spirit, I want to face the crows. If I'm not right this way, I want to be right with God. Now I'll do anything it takes. I confess my sin and rebellion against God. If I'm not right with anybody or anybody's not right with me, I'll do all I can. You may not be able to straighten it out, but I'll make, I'll do my. I wonder tonight, has this just been another sermon? You're going to hurry home and in a little bit after a while and see your TV program or whether you mean business enough that you is there some dear soul here tonight that would be honest enough and humble enough to say I, I want to do something about it I don't, I don't want to be the one that's to blame for anything that doesn't please God in this church I can't help what the other fellow does but I'm going to look after old number one we were going to sing one song we've sung all our lives. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain. Free to all the healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. It's a prayer, you notice. Fanny Crosby wrote it, and it's addressed to Jesus. Jesus, first word in it. Keep me near the cross. I want us to sing it like it was a prayer. Maybe a bit slowly. Certainly reverently, but if you need to do something, put your hymn book in the rack and walk down here and stand at the front. Face the pulpit if you're willing to say deep down in your heart, I'm willing to do anything that I can do by the grace of God. To see that everything's clear this way and this, just like that crow said. Now, if everybody's so good we don't need to do this, then I've wasted one sermon and no use coming because we don't need her of that. But I believe we've got some honest folks here. You, you've listened well and I believe you're humble enough to everybody looking at you and wondering what it is you've done and that's what keeps us from coming. Pride, pride. Swallow that pride. Let's all stand and have a word of prayer now before we sing it. And then, dear friend, I'm not trying to pressure anybody. Holy Spirit has to do that. If you're willing to walk down here and just stand, the pastor will be down here. If you want to take his hand, he's the shepherd of the flock. Tell him what you've come for. If you want to kneel, I, I want to see some of that this week. We've just about run out of this kneeling business in Baptist churches. We're so stiff-necked and hard-hearted, dry-eyed, that we don't do much of that anymore. You do it any way you want to, but if you want to come down saying, I want to get right, both directions. And the Holy Spirit has spoken to me by the word of God tonight. Now, if there's somebody in here you need to get right with, somebody in here you need to say a word to, you ought to walk there across the church and take their hand and say, 
I guess we ought to start. I guess it ought to start with us. I don't know. I don't know who needs to do what. All I ask is you obey the Holy Spirit. I believe some of you want to come. Let's sing, please, prayerfully. And come if you need to. Father, now you see the people for what they need to do. And as we sing, we pray that the Holy Spirit will get the victory and that we'll get things straight between us and thee and between each other. In Jesus' name, amen.